See, people love that cozy feeling Soups gives them. But if you knew half the shit they get up to, fucking diabolical. But then, that's where I come in. To spank the bastards when they get out of line. I'm Chris Bivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today we talk about the fucking boys on Genreless. Good morning, everyone. It is a, a a bright, dark, dank morning here. The sun hasn't risen yet. And I was trying to sleep, and then Eddie is calling me in the middle of the night saying, hey, we have to record a podcast. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, I went to bed four hours ago. Why are you bothering me? But yet, <laughs> here I am for all of you. Well, I mean, on the one hand, uh, time zones are a harsh mistress, and you know you have to kind of accept that. But on the other hand... I live in a country where it is the sunrise now happens at 4:45 a.m. So <laughs> but you leave that sun to go into a, a dark cell that you're yes. sitting in right now. Yes, I am recording from the the co-working space that I have and and the uh uh conference room that we we have here is kind of uh, very um I don't know hostage video vibe to it. It, it is very much the, the boys is sort of room that you're in because you can't afford to get anything good. So yeah, that's where you have to go. <laughs> exactly. For your super um, headquarters. And that's a good note uh, to start us off with is that, um, by the way, uh, the, the, all the content warnings, double, triple, quadruple them. This is a really rough show. And also we're probably going to swear a lot more just because it's that kind of show. Um, so if you're a little uncomfortable around Peacemaker, just just skip this episode. We'll, we'll meet you on the other side. <laughs> I, I like how you added the bit about swearing. I think that our podcast originally went from an, a, a G-rated podcast to wherever we are now. It is a, a <laughs> weird space and transition. We left the, the starry ideals of Star Trek to come to the slums of the boys. <laughs> and this is where it ends. It's like, we're, we're done. This podcast is over at this point. Um, no, that that's not true. But, but, but I mean, it's, it's interesting because, like, both you and I are naturally a bit prone to be sweary. Uh, and so when we're just kind of casually talking, you know, you know, the, the, the profanity leaps out, but I'm also at a weird point now where recognizing that most of our audience is still probably American. The things that we casual profanity are okay here in the UK are not things that I should be saying on the podcast anymore. So I kind of been always double checking is it okay for me to say that. Like I can't drop the C word on this, but the boys certainly has no problem with, with that. So, I mean, you know, this is kind of a weird liminal space for me. Uh, so where does the word bollocks fall into line, curiously? Bollocks is a very mild swear, honestly. Um, uh, and, and, and I, I tried to explain this to someone recently about bloody, because they were trying to figure out what a bloody word. And finally, I realized the best way to explain how the way bloody is perceived in the UK is the same way as heckin'. So if you replace the word heckin' with bloody, <laughs> it's basically the same. And, and today's podcast is actually just going to be a, a deep dive into swear words. So we're stealing, <laughs> you're going to like this, we're, we're stealing Nick Cage's thunder from the Netflix show called Swear Words that yes. he did. Which is actually a has. great documentary if you haven't seen it. Well, I was surprisingly interested and I watched three episodes of it. I, I didn't yeah. know why. I was like, really? Nick Cage yeah. is doing this? 
it was, it was literally, I, that, we got it the exact same way. It was like, we, what's nothing on? He's got, there's a documentary on swear words. Why the hell not? And I was like, this is surprising. It's the same like we watched uh, an entire season of the history of like uh, uh, candy, um, like um, how Hershey's and Eminem came about. And it's like Shadowrun level corporate intrigue. It's amazing. <laughs> All right. I'm going I'm to put that on my list. Yeah, um, yeah, it's on the History Channel. Joe Shade, I, I wish I didn't remember the name of it, but it's, it's actually surprisingly good. Some other good Milus Entertainment. Since we're, we're obviously just not going to talk about the boys today. <laughs> um, I think it's a show because, called like How It Was Made. Yes. There's two different versions. I think there's one about movies and there's one that CNN did that talked about the history of television and they broke it down by decades. Oh, that's interesting. It is the best ever. Like they started in the 40s or 50s. And they had one for each decade, and then they eventually get to the um, late night talk talk show wars, uh-huh. which is also fascinating. That was oh like, yeah, ah, pristine. So CNN documentary level stuff about television. Yeah, I definitely looked it up. So so this episode is going to be us just talking about profanity and exchanging uh, uh, viewing tips, because <laughs> otherwise I'll have to talk about butcher's accent, and I don't think I'm ready for that yet. <laughs> What you mean? That's not how how people should sound. That sounds. Carl Urban can do no wrong. Be it, love, be it Bones, be it Dread, be it Billy Butcher. I love Carl Urban, and when I first watched The Boys, I was like, "Oh, he's obviously doing an East London accent." And I have moved here, and now I watched it again, and I'm like, "Oh my god, that is not an East London accent. <laughs> that is a New Zealand accent with a, with a few words swapped out." <laughs> or. Here, here's a deeper dive for in a show that we may do then how about uh his his work in almost human remember that one? Oh god yes i remember really wanting to like that show and it kind of just never went anywhere i was like ah. yep. Look, just about because it, it reminded me of, of the often forgotten and not appreciated alien nation tv show mm, nice one same idea of, I, like the human cop and alien partner <laughs> I was I was thinking it was almost a, a direct riff on the Total Recall TV show with the cop and the android sidekick. I've never seen the Total Recall TV show. I probably should at some point. It's I think it even ran twenty some odd episodes, and it of course only got one season. Honestly, <laughs> or at some I could point. go even further back from a, a post I made in the Discord. Jeez, is that a year ago for uh, the '90s cop and machine wow. show called Man and Machine? Oh God, yeah. With Yancey Butler. At some point, and our viewers should let us know if they want to see this, um, we should do like one season TV shows. TV shows that, that only did one season and were canceled for some opaque reason. So a, a behind the scenes note, since we're, we're totally just not going to add all do this today. <laughs> um, this, this has been the longest run of a series that we've done so far. Yeah. And we've been talking about it behind the scenes. And... We, we're going to change some things how we're doing ourselves. And because this run of superheroes has been fun, but it is longer than what we wanted to do for the type of show. Yeah. I think we could agree that generally a run for us should be about 10 to 13 episodes per genre before we jump on to something else. Mm-hmm. And we'll come back to genre. So that's another reason why it's not such a big deal. But this has felt long. And so when you say you want to do an entire run of first season shows, I envision that taking two years from the well, sheer number of canceled shows. No, certainly. But but I mean, that's a, that's a good point you bring up because like um, 
when we first started this, it's like, we're going to do space opera and we've done space opera. We will never go back to that, right? And that was kind of the initial idea. We'll do really small genres, but then definitively cover them. And, and I think we're now moving to, in retrospect, this could have been like two or three separate seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I, I, I was thinking more my lines of like, let's do like one season shows and do like just a representative sample of them. Like you said, you know, uh, uh, nine to 13 of them. Uh, and then if we like that, come back to it and pick another nine to 13 of them. Um, I think that's a, maybe a, a better way of, of managing this all going forward. Because again, I, I've been really enjoying this run. I've seen some fantastic TV and certainly I've, I've gotten you hooked on two shows. So I consider that a huge win. Uh, but also it does feel like the conversation is starting to feel a little samey on some level. So, mm-hmm. and there, there's never a thought to, to change what we're doing now because it's at a point when you're, so we'll do it like this. When you're in the middle of the game and you plan that big heist and you stole in the widget and every fucking thing goes wrong, but you've got the widget. It's not like you suddenly decide, well, let's just give the widget back and apologize and see what happens. No, you ride that trade till the wheels fall off and you either die or become rich. And so that's where we're at now with this superhero run. We're, we're either going to make it to the end or we're going to have a planet fall on top of us full of kryptonite and kill us. <laughs> so what you're saying is we have to change the podcast name from John Willis to Sunk Cost Fallacy. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> But 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 serious no, I mean uh, we we have uh, we have uh, plans coming up, um, and I'm looking forward to some of those plans. So we're st- I'm still we're still into it. We're still happy to do it. This is more just kind of us taking a quick moment to step aside and say, as always, we're always fiddling and adjusting the formula. And this is another one that we're finding that has some good things, but ultimately, let's let's short. Frankly, the uh, little kind of prisoner Twin Peaks one, I feel like is is a really good example of I think where we should be going going forward. I can see that. So almost you're saying that we're evolving, we're mu- we're mutating into mutants. Uh, I, I think we are injecting uh, a superpower steroid directly into our process. <laughs> hey, on that note, let's let's <laughs> get to the fucking show. Um, so I have never read the boys' comic. I know it exists. I know that people love it. I've read hit bits and pieces of garth ennis so my knowledge of ennis is sketchy at best i've read a lot of the pre- a lot of read a lot of preacher which yeah. is in of itself a an interesting series but we're not here to cover preacher i have read uh about the first six issues of the boys um and i have most of my garth ennis has been uh his time on judge dread as well as some of his punisher stuff um and in a lot of ways, I feel like the boys is peak Garth Ennis because the one thing that's fascinating about Garth Ennis' superhero comic writing is that he clearly hates superheroes. And this is clearly him really digging into that. And I'm not talking like just generally. I, I think he actually hates the format. I, I, I think he has real problems with, with the tropes and the – uh, uh, structures of superhero comics and, and actively goes out of his way to sabotage them. Uh, and that can result in some interesting stuff. More often it results in him being very much a 90s writer who hasn't quite gotten out of the 90s, in my opinion. <laughs> and so I was not excited originally to watch the show when it first came out. I was like, oh, it's Garth Ennis. Oh, this is going to be of a certain tone. Um 
But I, I genuinely feel as kind of a, a structure of talking about the show as a whole um, that this was a great example of, of a team taking an existing material, adapting it for the best use for the format, in which this case is uh, streaming television, and polishing off the rough edges of the material to find what's genuinely interesting underneath of that and then building on that, but not stripping away its essential Garth Ennisness. It is still extremely violent, extremely crass, extremely blunt, uh, extremely offensive in a lot of ways, but there's an intentionality there that sometimes doesn't come across in source material that does come across in, in the show. And I would give a, a lot of credit to the team, but I'm going to specifically mention Eric Kripke, Eric Kripke, because that is a name that I know because I was a person that watched the first five or six seasons Supernatural, which he was part of the driving force between behind the first five, I think before it conclusively ended but they got another season and he passed it on to someone else and they added like an extra two minutes onto the end of season five. And that's why we have 17 seasons. I think, you know, supernatural. Right. But it was, he was part of that driving movement and that sort of style and feel that he has is infused into the boys, even as you're watching it. Mm. That's sort of an underlying current for all the innocence and it's keeping it together and somewhat compelling. Cause I know when it first came out, if it's a superhero show, I'm going to give it, Two to four, my I'm saying my my troop now. Two to four <laughs> episodes to see how it see how it runs. Mm-hmm. And the first episode, of the boys, was enough to keep me interested to watch more of it. And now every season that it drops, I I will watch it, I will enjoy some of it, and then I will move on. It's not a show though that I want to go back and rewatch because of the sheer amount of isms in it. Yeah, that's that's something that was interesting. Uh, Chris and I talked a little bit. Uh, sometimes we chat about the show before we record, but we try to limit that because we want to save the conversation for the recording. Um, but one thing that I mentioned, cause I noticed myself doing is that I, I tend to, I tended to skim a bit partially because there are certain scenes like, okay, I know what happens in this scene. I remember very vividly what happens in the scene. I do not want to experience it again. Um, but the experience of actually watching the show when it first drops and you know week to week or episode to episode is better than it does not age well on rewatching even in the short term in my opinion uh mostly because i think a lot of the shock is is diminished and that that feeling of i'm never quite sure what's going to happen is better when you're experiencing the first time but when you know it's coming it's just okay that's just uncomfortable i'm gonna skip past it Which then goes into a, a totally different conversation that would become about what could be immediately memeable compared to what would be considered using the term classic in a very broad sense now, right. but classic television. So something that you can come back and watch in 50 years and it still has resonance and meaning how it did then. Right. And right. I don't think the boys falls into that category. No, I think the boys is much more, it, it, it is, for good or for ill, going to be very much a 2019 show, a 2021 show. Each, each season is going to be very much of the year it was made in. And that can be good when you're experiencing it in that year. Uh, and again, I mean, I, I'm not taking anything from it. I, I, I think it's one of the better deconstruction superhero shows that are currently out there of all the ones we've watched. Um, Peacemaker being an exception. Uh, but... Um, I loved going back to Peacemaker and watching that again. I struggled to get through this. And 
So I, w- I would talk a-, a little bit about one of the cast members, uh, Anthony Starr. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, I think there's a little bit of controversy around Anthony Starr, who was potentially arrested when they were filming, I think it was season three or four, season three. And I'm not sure what happened with all of that, but I am going to preference that for people before I go into that. I do Anthony Starr from a little show called Banshee. I don't know if people wow, watch never, Banshee. I've never even heard of that. It is a, how would I describe Banshee? Banshee is a, a dark crime noir show. It's focused more on uh, the violence of some of the fights, the sexiness of the people in it, and sort of an ongoing story. It had it two or three seasons. And so to see Anthony, Anthony Starr become a, a superhero, the Homelander version that we get here is spot on for what I would envision him portraying as a Captain America Superman um, archetype. Fair so enough. So people haven't seen Banshee, uh, I'd say go give it a watch. Fair enough. And it's it's amusing because both he and uh, Carl Urban are from New Zealand, and, and one of them has an accent that I had no idea they were from New Zealand, and the other one is Carl Urban. <laughs> uh, do you have anything <laughs> else you'd like to say about Garth Ennis or the comics? Um, uh, one note, uh, which... Um, I was going to mention in the episode, but I think it makes more sense to mention here. Uh, there's a neat little meta cameo, I guess, uh, in the show in that um, Huey's father is played by Simon Pegg, uh, who does actually a pretty good American accent. Uh, but Simon Pegg was actually the visual reference for Huey in the comic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I thought that was a neat little bit of casting in similar to how uh, Samuel L. Jackson was actually hired for Nick Fury because Samuel L. Jackson was the reference for Nick Fury in the Ultimates. Can Can you think of how excited and happy Samuel L. Jackson is now because he agreed to to a thing for a comic book and it has yeah. now gotten him 18, 20 years of additional work yeah. and become yeah. his most high-profile character he's played? Absolutely. And now he's got a whole TV show where he's the lead. Yeah. it It drops either now sometime in the past or sometime in the future, depending on when this recording of ours drops much like all television. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, as I did not read the comic, I can't speak to the people in it, but I do know that the show itself added more diversity into the characters than what was in the comic. Yes. Um, I do not believe mother's milk was in the original comic. Um, I, I don't think I got far enough to when Kamiku, or sorry, the female, uh, may or may not have been interested, introduced. Uh, but certainly uh, other ones like A-Train was was uh, swapped. And I think, honestly, the character is vastly improved by the change. Uh, and a couple other things were, were definitely increased to increase the diversity because Garth Ennis, is a Scottish writer and, and certainly um, has a little bit of, of uh, problems thinking about uh, inclusivity. Uh, not that that's inherent to Scotland, but just rather he grew up in a relatively white area and so doesn't think about those things as often as perhaps he should. To that, let's take a, a minute to talk about some of our, our very large cast of characters. I'll just kind of do a quick rundown. Uh, let's start with Vaught. 
We've got Madeline Stilwell, who is the vice president and the shadow broker, basically, for the entire first season. Yep. Is the primary one that we inter- interact with. There's one other person who I will not mention because they do not show up in any of the episodes we watch. Right. Who is the the mastermind of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Other than that, we've got Maeve, who is our Wonder Woman analog, except she can't fly is one of the big things. And she would also throughout the course of the show, you discover that she is uh, a lesbian. And that's sort of one of the underlying story arcs for her that sort of slowly comes out. Mm-hmm. We've got Homelander, who is our Superman Captain America analog, who is a, a raging psychopath that is the embodiment of everything stereotypical about America itself. Yep. We've got a train who is our flash analog, who's a speedster who is also addicted to a steroid to help them get over the hump for some of their own running. And it's having health repercussions, which is a, a larger conversation. I want to touch on shortly that mm-hmm. the character, they race bent, they turns into an athlete with a drug problem. Yeah. Uh, Starlight, who is a an up-and-comer that wants to join the Seven. Then Seven is sort of their own Justice League team I'm slowly going through. And she's replacing Lamplighter, who is retiring. And she has light-based powers. Almost a riff on Power Girl. If Power mm-hmm. Girl had more light-based powers and didn't have Kryptonian-based powers. Right. Uh, the Deep, who is our, our low-powered Aquaman ripoff. Oh, who is incredibly problematic and gets our first shot into one of the the isms associated with the show and then they try to do a reversal on that which we'll talk about translucent who from some of my reading is totally new to the show who can turn invisible has diamond hard skin like emma frost and is a total perv yep black noir who is our I want to say Batman analog, but that one's a little harder. Almost a, if for my Marvel comic fans, a a Night Thrasher with superpowers, low level right. superpowers, uh, or, or um, another DC analog would be a Midnighter. Yeah, uh, but that's a pretty deep cut. I, I actively avoided Midnighter because that is technically under the authority, which was was Wildstorm before Wildstorm got gobbled up by DC. Right. We we could do we should have a whole show just about that. Like that would be an interesting <laughs> talk. Um then we jump over to the boys. We've got Huey, who is a work a civilian that worked in a technical store, a tech store who has confidence issues. We've got Butcher, who is a spy, CIA, SAS, uh one something in there. Someone with government ties. That potentially also lost her wife, which is her driving motivation. Mother's right. Milk, who is a operations planner, who sort of has a family now and gets sort of brought back into it. Frenchie, who is a illegal arms dealer and weapon specialist. Uh, Kimiko, aka the female, who is basically a Wolverine analog. Yeah. Or again, to get slightly deeper, um, more in explicitly kind of an x23 analog or or markedly the best wolverine analog well you know x23 is wolverine right i'm saying best wolverine no but some people when you say wolverine they don't think uh, of the best wolverine they think of that other canadian guy 
Laura Kinney is awesome. Laura Kinney is the best. Although I got to say, I don't know how I feel about having uh, a claw that pops out of my foot. That's, that is where <laughs> I'm a little. It helps the climbing. Yeah. It helps the climbing. Uh, more or less, that is our cast of characters that we primarily interact and engage with here. I did. I'm sorry. I should give a special shout out to Mesmer, who is Haley Joel Osman, who shows up for a, a a a brief blink and you miss him role for uh, for our episodes that we're watching. Yes. Yes. Do did you think I missed anyone? Or I think that's uh, a good. Uh, I, I think. I mean, uh, technically, there's Robin, but uh, she lasts all like one third of one episode. Um, so, uh, um, I don't think it's worth necessarily going into too much about that, but, uh, Robin's wrists is, last longer than she does. Right. Exactly. Uh, there's, um, we'll talk about more in future episodes, but certainly, uh, the, the fact that these are recognizable archetypes, um, starts to evoke a lot of Jupiter's legacy. And some of the conversations we had there, um, you're probably going to hear some rehashes of that here. Uh, But again, I I think this is another intentional thing of like, let's use the super, uh, the Justice League as kind of as a rough way of implying a larger superheroic universe. I'm willing to say, though, that with their just comparing one season to one season, the boys use that more effectively than what Jupiter's legacy did. I think it's fair. Um, Although I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that we have a different cast of people that get to interact as we'll say equals convert for screen time with our superheroes. And it wasn't just about a code, but it was people living their lives and seeing how that impacted them and different things. It goes back to this conversation of nuance. Right. I I think the other piece that that really helps is the fact that this show is is pretty intentionally explicitly positioned from the viewpoint of the average person and not the superheroes. So that kind of vague, yeah, superheroes fit fit this role in our our overall psyche works really well because we don't need to have that nuance. We don't need to have that structure as opposed to a show which is centered around the superheroes where we really should have more of that structure there to kind of help us buy in that concept more. Yeah. And if you don't have anything else, I'll go ahead and give a yep, quick summary it. of the first episode. Season one, episode one, the name of the game. Robin, Hugh, Huey Campbell's girlfriend, is killed accidentally from a high-speed velocity impact by celebrity superhero A-Train leaving Huey traumatized. Vault lawyers offer him a $45,000 settlement, which he hesitates because he has to sign an NDA and can't talk about the incident. Aspiring superhero, Annie January, auditions as Starlight and accepted to join the superhero group of the Seven, following Lamplighter's retirement. After arriving at the Seven's headquarters, she is greeted by the Deep, who blackmails her into performing sexual acts on him. Vigilante, uh, spy, uh, crook, criminal, <laughs> would-be savior, Billy Butcher offers Huey a chance to expose superhero corruption. He takes him to a secret soups club to show him security footage of A-Train laughing about Robin's death. Butcher asks Huey to take the settlement money and secretly place a bug at Seven Tower. But Huey initially refuses. In Central Park, Annie meets Huey by ha- happenstance motivating each other to stand up for themselves and face their challenges. Huey plants the bug, but Translucent discovers it and confronts him, 
Butcher arrives and the two incapacitate Translucent. Elsewhere, Homelander destroys the mayor of Baltimore's plane while flying, killing all passengers, even after the mayor's son waves at him lovingly and Homelander smiles. In response to the mayor's attempt to blackmail his boss and surrogate mother figure lover at Vought International, company VP Madeline Stilwell. And uh, so uh, the... I do remember the the bit of Robin dying and him just holding her wrists is very much right out of the comic. Uh, and then from there, the show pretty quickly moves to inspired by the comic rather than faithfully following the comic, which is good. So, for example, um, in the comic, Butcher has a bulldog um, and he has trained his bulldog to have sex with people, which is just exactly the kind of insightful commentary you expect from Garth Ennis. Uh, so there are certainly a lot of things that I'm glad they made changes about. Uh, and one of the things that I actually like about this show is kind of this early act of if superheroes existed in the real world, a lot of deconstruction takes things. If superheroes exist in the real world, what kind of problems come out of it? Jupiter's legacy kind of hand-waved it and basically said, okay, well, there would be a code and let's argue about the code and the code and the code and the philosophical debates about the code. Uh, this brings a, a difference, I think more interesting point of they would probably have a corporation behind them and they would handle things like a business. And when you have actual lawsuits like this, they would try to settle out of court as much as possible. And it's interesting because there's lots of wrongful death in superhero comics and this isn't something you just don't see very often. What happens to the survivors and how do superheroes engage with that? Obviously, this is take a very cynical view of that, but it still already presents a more interesting and compelling presence than Joker's legacy ever did. Mm -hmm. In under what? Three minutes. Yeah. It, it, it's right away. It's like, cool. Let's, let's, let's directly engage with this premise that Joker's legacy never got around to even starting to address. Um, Wow. So it was, I remember first watching this and having not read the comic, I had no points of reference whatsoever for it. Mm -hmm. And that scene is upsetting and gripping all at once. And even when I first watched it, it instantly made me think of Gail Simone and Frigid. Like I knew yeah. that was oh, going to yeah. be Huey's story arc. And then to have Butcher's story arc be this a similar thing because effectively they fridged Butcher's wife also. Right. And that's what's so frustrating to me for Garth Innes is that again he clearly hates superhero stuff and yet falls into all of the the awful tropes that superheroes engender so it's like he he's angry at them but, but in, rather than challenging them he just blithely slides right back into them and I think the intent is look at how dumb this is look at how awful this is but he, it never actually is on the page or on the screen um, so for every while wow, this is a really interesting and nuanced take to what happened to wrongful death, you have the, okay, but why do you not only have to use the fridging trope, but use it twice? Yeah. And one of the most heartbreaking scenes that even still deals with the fridging of Robin is that after the funeral, you go back and you have Huey talking about how he wants to fight and do this thing. And you have Simon Pegg turning and saying to him that I, I admire that, but you don't have the fight. You never did. We don't, which in like recontextualizes those entire two characters, their entire lives up to this point. 
Mm-hmm. And you got snippets of that with with Huey, even in the store, and you can't ask for a raise. But that part of it just sort of cements it in for you. Right. Uh, but I, I, one thing I liked about that scene uh, is the fact that um, his father, Simon Pegg walks a good line here between his father not coming across as a coward, but rather as just a scared old man who's worried about his son. Um, he He's like, listen, they're superheroes. Just take the money. And it's, his dialogue is very well, they probably know what they're doing and we need to prote- support them. But his acting comes across as I am terrified of these people. Uh, and I think it's a really good balance, especially in the very first episode to show that for all of the action figures and movies and advertising and the people who are excited to see them, there's also very much uh, a fear of what they could do. And that's something that for all of the the lack of subtlety the show has, it does, at least at this early stage, play reasonably close to its chest to slowly build on how that fear can lead to the creation of a group like the boys. Because, again, much like like, like, uh, um, Peacemaker, you're not supposed to like just about any of these characters. Huey, you kind of sympathize with, but even then, he tends to be kind of a jerk. There are very few characters that are actually likable um, even Starlight starts off as, as very likable, but but changes over time. Um, so everyone here has some percentage of gray. Uh, and so it's really important for a show like this to make sure that while there are characters who can go completely to evil, there need to be some characters that are at least close to good, but they, they have to have an interesting complex relationship. Whereas again, Huey in the comic is just my girlfriend dead. Well, time to murder superheroes is basically his entire story arc in like one or two issues. <laughs> and this spends more time of him going, I don't know if I want to accept the money. And at first it's from a position of morality, but then, it, and, and his father's like, Nope, it's just take the money and, and, and sign the NDA and just go on with your life. Keep your head down. Um, and, it turns out that both of them are scared, even though that fear pushes them into opposite uh, ways to resolve the situation. And that is good writing to have mm-hmm. two people with the same sort of problem and approaching it differently because humans are not the same. Any, any set of humans, even if related living together, the exact same situation, people respond differently to different stimulators and stresses. And that was a nice touch. I'm, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and say, I liked Robin. Robin was my favorite character. <laughs> yes. And, but then we get, so with her death, we see a train covered in all of her viscera and he himself looks scared and concerned about what just happened. And you mm-hmm. get that glimpse that humanizes a, a murderer. Yep. Before he jets off. And so you have all those different emotions all spiraling and everything happening at once. Good. That was good cinematography. That was a nice bit of storytelling. And we continued transition through the episode. But I want to do it. Let's do it. Mm. Not going there yet. Okay. $45,000 does not sound like a lot of money, but that is a lot of money to someone in their economic status. That. Yep isn't life-changing but it is a nest egg that gives you the ability to lose your job to let you go and try new things to in a sense 
jumpstart, re-jumpstart your own existence. So it is not a small amount of money to them. It is uh, pennies to a corporation like Vought. Right. And that is a good show of the power structure and dynamic that's also going on in addition to the superhero struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was, it was, again, a small detail, but it's actually pretty perfectly balanced because Huey and his father both say, we could use that money. Uh, and given what little we see of both of their lives, they could use that money. But we also know immediately that Vought not only can easily afford this, but also has probably paid out this chump change to people before. Mm-hmm. And the reason I like it so much, I want to make a special comment on it, is that in a lot of shows, they would have a company like this coming and offering the people a million, $10 million to go away. Right. That doesn't happen. That rarely ever, ever happens. They offer you a small amount. They think that will be enough to eke you over to the line because fighting for something is harder than just acquiescing and moving on. Yep. And a lot of people, even to quote Simon Pegg, just don't have the fight. Yeah. Yep. You can go on. I'm. I'm. I'm not going to touch an A train yet. There's. Okay. There's a, a scene right. that I'm waiting for for A train. Well, then I, I may. I may lose it and eventually talk about it anyway. But well, then let's talk about Starlight. Um, Starlight is. Uh, I I like Starlight because she starts off as. She's positioned as a stereotype, but immediately we know there's more there. Like there's a lot of the um, pageant mom childhood trauma that's touched on here that actually gets built on later. Um, the idea of a mother trying to live vicariously through her daughter and pushing her into doing things that she may or may not be wanting to do. Um, the uh, oversimplification of American culture to equate uh, Christianity with the American identity. Uh, the fact that she is a, uh, a white blonde woman. Um, there's a lot of things that are happening here that really build up a certain character concept and it looks like it's going in a very specific direction, but it, 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 it actually goes in more interesting places. It, it could have been just the, Oh, it's the blonde haired girl who makes good and everything's easy for her. And it, it, it actually goes to some really cool places with it. Um, but this was the first time also where I was like, okay, I, I need to skim some of these episodes because I really did not need to go through that scene. That, that scene with her in the deep is, uncomfortable and it's clearly intentionally meant to be uncomfortable because mm -hmm. it is exactly the kind of bullshit that happens when men are in power over women uh and especially to young attractive women uh and so it's like i respect the writers and the team for very unflinchingly presenting that but watching it again was so uncomfortable i was like okay i know what happens in the scene i don't need to revisit it so i just kind of skimmed through it got to the next scene mm -hmm. and the the bathroom scene between Maeve and Starlight is also a was good to have in the show as it shows someone that may have already gone through it who has in some sense disassociated themselves with most of it and just going through the motions. Yep. And doesn't break down, doesn't have a a like we'll get through this together, but it's like you just need to not let people see this shit. And then left like that was it. That was we're at two totally different places in this journey. 
it reminded me a lot of the uh, bathroom scene in Umbrella Academy we talked about that we liked too, of um, a woman who is in a position of authority, basically telling the uh, uh, less experienced colleague um, that you just need to get over it. And, and that's just how it is. And simultaneously presenting a valid case, but also making the audience aware that this is not the best way to handle the situation. And so I think both, even though there's lots of parallels between the scenes, they both are doing slightly different things, but there's a good solid energy in both of them that causes them both to resonate really well. Mm-hmm. Um, while we're talking about Starlight, do you recognize uh, Aaron Moriarty from another show that we've watched? Oh yeah. It's been bugging me. I was like, I know I've seen her before, but I don't remember where. Um, think about the 10th doctor tenth and a doctor? certain super powered private eye who goes to rescue the girl. Oh, that's right. Yes. She was the daughter in, um, uh, 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 Jessica uh, Jones. Jessica Jones. I can think of the name a second. And yes, she murdered right. both her parents. Yes. You're right. You're right. Cause she was the one with the purple handbag. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's a bit of a shift for her. <laughs> Good for her though. Good for her yeah. work. Yeah. Um, so we have that scene and the, the introduction of a butcher. <laughs> I, the, 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 my brain doesn't like it, but my, my gruff exterior loves it. Like Carl Oberon has just charisma to spare, regardless of any role he plays. Just right. oozes off of him. And it is vital for Butcher to be played by someone like Carl Urban because he absolutely is the person that he is a walking red flag. He is a, a red flag in a red flag suit comprised of red flags with a red flag inside. I mean, he's <laughs> a horrible person, but you have to buy that people still believe his bullshit. And the fact that within five seconds of seeing Carl Urban on screen as Billy Butcher, you're like, I know that guy's an asshole and I still want to keep watching him. And that's exactly what you need. <laughs> and it works. He, he convinces Huey to go with him and they go to a, a superhero club that goes and shows you all the stuff that the media is showing you is lies. Yep. And like, this is the actual reality of everything. Mm-hmm. And again, um, uh, we talked uh, just to quickly recap. One thing about that scene that's subtle is um, we've talked about this before, implying a larger superhero universe. Um, and so like, uh, we have the, um, the one guy is like, Oh, he's a superhero name dropped. Um, and he oozes towards, uh, two boys on a couch and it's like, he's supposed to be super conservative, but he's actually secretly seeing boys. Right. And that, that dialogue happens the way it's very natural. And we have that scene of him doing a superpower in front of it. Uh, and we, I don't think we see that character ever again, but it implies a larger universe in a way that is more economical and efficient than I think Jupiter's legacy was, was more hand-vistedly trying to pull off by just cramming more and more characters on screen. It's like, you know, just have a cameo of these characters exist. We, we quickly recap uh, both who they are and why they're here in the scene, which is to show that they're a hypocrite. And then we move on. We don't need to address them ever again. I think we actually do meet him again this season. I want to say it was around episode five or so. I think the boys <laughs> blackmail him. Oh, that's right. Like a religious figure. And that's when Homelander is sort of catching on to some of their stuff. And that's where they also have their Christ metaphor of Homelander flying down like Jesus Christ with all the little worshippers trying to touch him. But, but, but still, I mean, the, the, the larger point is that, you know, you don't, you don't need to, they're, they're being 
subtle here by by showing that there are more soups than just the seven, uh, and that enough that they can have a separate club. But it's not okay. We have to put seventeen people on a screen and all have them fight somebody. Yeah, this was a nicer touch. And then you get to see the video of a train and someone else laughing. And you can almost sort of also tell that a train is not forced into it, but goes along with it because that's what uh, a dude would do. But then that also gives you a larger context of the thing. Does that mean that butcher has someone here on the payroll to send him this footage? How does Mm -hmm. butcher know about this? They didn't go to find Huey. Like that has larger connotations all associated with it without having to say it. And, and, And I love the fact that, Butcher is presented as someone who has a lot of knowledge and influence, and then you find out later that he doesn't have any of that. And then you find out even later that he has a knowledge and influence because he just basically manipulates and uses people. Um, there's a beautiful character arc there of not not Butcher's character arc. Butcher's character arc is coming much, much, much later. Um, but rather Huey's character arc of seeing Butcher in different ways because we're mirror because. Huey's our viewpoint character in a lot of ways. So we're seeing Butcher in different ways as Huey's seeing Butcher in different ways. And right now we're seeing Butcher as this mysterious man who seems to have a whole lot of answers. Yeah. And we, we get Huey's agreement and then we get the, the awkward scene of him and a train shaking hands, Mm -hmm. signing it and sort of playing the bug. But then we get the reveal again of translucent who was shown earlier, who's it hides in the bathroom to watch people. Yep. That's his entire thing. All day. Just hanging in the bathroom. Yep. Oh. Invisibility, it, it, the, the power I hate. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's awful. For multiple reasons. And I I, I really like how uh, Huey, they, they use an audio cue um, to, uh, that kind of high-pitched whine when he's getting really stressed out and they've been using it throughout the episode. And then when he's with A-Train, it looks like he's about to collapse on himself and then the sound just stops and his face changes and he smiles and shakes a train's hand um and i actually really love that because people are messy and complicated and i like the fact that huey is not just universally coward or universally brave at this moment he finds something something clicks in him so he can do this thing at this moment but then he falls back, and in later episodes, he's back to being nervous and scared around these things. And the fact that he has these complicated emotional relationships that's not just a simple binary of, of adjective um, makes that scene really sell because it, it, we've all had those moments of clarity, right? And, and he ha- it's what he has there. So it's a nice little balance of acting and audio cue to kind of really sell that moment in a way that's not – no one's saying anything to clarify that. And we get the ine- inevitable confrontation between Translucent and Huey at, at the electronic store. Yes. And we get the fight of how hard it is to fight someone who's invisible. Yes. If you have no way to detect them, regardless of their real other superpowers, you can't see him to hit them. And that was unbelievably funny just to watch. Yeah. And, and it, going back to your point about invisibility being an awful superpower, it is an extremely powerful superpower until someone can circumvent it, and then it becomes almost immediately useless. Um, and we saw that with, with with Butcher. It's like he spits his own blood on 
translucent, which is a sentence I never thought I'd say. <laughs> and then suddenly it's like, okay, now I know where he's at. I can start punching him. And the fight's pretty much over at that point. I do want to point out that the level of superpowers in the show are generally consistent. There's something, though, that most of them have at least low-level super strength and endurance. Yeah. Which was a nice touch regardless of what their other primary power is. Like, we right. even get that with with A-Train, who's a speedster, but also seems to have some super strength. And we get it with Translucent here also. Mm-hmm. But then we have people like Mesmer, who we'll encounter later, that has no, like, super physical abilities at all. So that's the the weird point that I would have liked a little bit more consistency around. Like all of them have it or none of them have it unless it's their primary thing would have been nice. But right. that goes back to plotting. So it's it's harder for Huey and the boys to intimidate someone who has superhuman strength. Yeah. Um, and I think it's slightly more of a problem because it becomes actually a plot point for Starlight later. Um, the fact that she is super strong uh, becomes a point of her and Huey's relationship. So the fact that she, all of them kind of have super strength would have been good to clarify a little earlier because her strength is never a feature of like her highlight reel or her introduction. It's like, oh, she does starlight stuff. Um, and so there's very much a place. Oh, and also everyone kind of has a certain level of the strength is never quite addressed early on. It's, it's, it's backfilled later. So it's not like it's, it's completely missing. Um, but at this stage, you're right. It's a little inconsistent. And we end with the graphic, horrible scene of Homelander blowing up a plane. The first plane that is home. Yeah. Is, uh, cause for Homelander to strike Homelander destroying a plane and loving how powerful heat vision is it's it's been a joke for a lot of a lot of superhero shows but this makes heat vision scary as fuck to, yeah. to constantly see and use yeah it's like okay yeah he can fly and he has super strength but you're right the heat vision is presented as the most terrifying thing and it's it's great when it's used in this way because it's 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 working on a few levels one it's an excuse to make his eyes go red which is a, a, a very old symbol for evil in a lot of ways um, but also that that glowing look is then applied in other circumstances. Um, and so once you start to establish this heat vision, this is how awful it is. When you see something glowing like that heat vision, the audience is trained, okay, this is also a bad thing that I need to be worried about. And we see an example of that a little bit later. So yeah, it's it's it was cool to see Heat Vision be more than just kind of, oh, this is a cheap special effect we can do to no, we're actually gonna write the story to a degree around this being actually his signature ability. And it's all of that coupled with the fact that for someone to use super strength or things like that, they have to move. You see them moving towards you. Mm-hmm. So you get that instant, all right, this is about to happen. Heat vision just seems to Glow death. It's how it yep. works. It's almost instant. So any point in time, you could be dead. So that yeah. is an, an additional layer of psychological trauma on top of everyone's head that interacts with Homelander. Absolutely. Any other comments about this episode? Nope. Move on to season one, episode four, The Female of the Species. Following Popclaw. Popclaw. Oh, Popclaw. Oh. <laughs> I've that is a horrible power uh, falling pop claws <laughs> tip. The boys find triad hiding out, holding an imprisoned Japanese 
find the triad uh, holding an imprisoned Japanese woman they call the female. The female. Frenchie frees her and she kills the guards before running off. While M.M. finds evidence she was a test subject, Huey goes bowling with Annie, bugging her phone at Butcher's request. With, a, with their compound V supply compromised, A-Train has Popclaw go into hiding while he searches for the female. Stillwell sends Homelander and Queen Maeve to save a hijacked airliner. However, after Homelander accidentally destroys the control panel, he abandons the plane and forces Maeve to leave with him before they can rescue anyone. After the female kills a woman associated with her captors, Frenchie tracks her to Penn Station and makes a momentary connection with her before losing her in the crowd, just as A-Train arrives and tries to kill her. Frenchie attracts a crowd to distract A-Train, allowing the female to escape. The boys corner her, but she attacks him before Butcher uses knockout gas that Frenchie acquired earlier on. Stillwell is pleased to see Homelander use their airliner tragedy to push for militarization of soups, rousing the crowd with a speech, very reminiscent of 45, all while mm-hmm. Maeve grieves for those she and Homelander allowed to die. So, uh, uh, sorry, not sorry, but um, for this whole season, uh, before Kimiko gets her name, uh, she's absolutely called the female. And every time I heard it in Quark's voice from Deep Space Nine, female, who man? So awful. Very much so. Popclaw. Popclaw. Ugh. Popclaw. Such a Ugh. such a great superhero name. I, <laughs> it is. I don't think we just, we, um, we just see Popclaw for a bit in these episodes, but. Yeah. And and then the boys sort of force her to do something. Like, and, all right, I'm going to start this one off by talking about A-Train because I think this is the one where A-Train is at the track with his brother trying to get him to race faster. Yeah. the This bothered me when I saw it. This bothered me now. The fact that you have your race flipped black character being an athlete, that is their primary focus, mm-hmm. and having them addicted to drugs and having them concerned about a race they're going to to then need to t- continually take a steroid to be able to perform the thing that they are supposedly very good at. And at the same time, constantly acquiescing to other people around them, primarily to white other characters around them. And just being a mockery is insulting. And it also is riding on the coattails of Jesse Owens, who was a legendary black runner who won the gold medal in fucking Germany against Hitler. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and they're, this is making a mockery of that. And they're, they're not saying it, but they're like winking really hard at you. Coupled with the fact that there is a specific line where after Jesse Owens won the medal, came back home, America is so racist and fucked up that he wasn't rewarded by America. Instead, he had to go and start racing horses. Mm-hmm to make money to get by. And I remember right. There's a specific line in here about a train racing horses. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like fucking irritated. I, I, I feel like the show was getting close to going. And by the way, this is a problem. Uh, the issue is that a train's an asshole. 
Um, and so it's like, we don't want to see that problem. And so it, the show never gets a chance to really engage with that in any meaningful way. It, it, so you're right. It's presented as kind of, let's throw a bunch of stereotyped about black athletes onto this character. Um, and because like you can see a storyline of a, the pressures of a black man to represent his entire uh, race as this high profile person while also not getting the respect within that organization. It's like, it, it, that that storyline is almost there. You can, you can see the, the edges of it and it just never lands, never goes anywhere. Um, so you're right. It just ends up being kind of frustrating. It's similar to the deep. The deep is much worse case of this where characters in episode one presented as like, these are horrible, awful, scary people. And the deep is already halfway through his slide into comedy relief in this show. Um, and it's, Again, it looks like you see a thread of the deep going through. This is what happens when one bad day can get you get you uh, into the out of your your spotlight. But it comes across as kind of a whiny example of well, this guy got canceled. So this is how horrible it is when you get canceled, um, which I have zero sympathy for. Um, for when you're a sex offender, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like I, I, you're you're trying to make us sympathize with the seven, and that's not their role in this show. Um, and you can't really do meaningful discussion of how black people are treated by American population when this black character is ultimately treated as an oppressive asshole. So I'm with you on that. Um, and it's frustrating because, again, Adrian's more nuanced than he is in the comic. Uh, so it's like th- th- if that nuance had gone a little better, it could have been a genuinely interesting arc. Um, combined with small details like A Train struck me initially as kind of like a very Chicago nickname of like that's such a weird nickname to get to a speedster and, and why is this? Um, but then like in the sound design when he arrives on the scene, his super speed sounds like a train whistle, but it also sounds like a weird Doppler effect. So like it sounds like a natural. Okay, this is just the sound that came up, but then some marketing person said, "Oh, A Train." You know, I mean, so like th- there's lots it's, of bits that are actually cool, but it just it's, doesn't it's, hang together. It's still early in the morning, so I may be a little off right now. But the A train is also what was used to get to Harlem in the 20s. Oh, well, that's that's less that's less irritating or less exciting, I should say. It is more irritating. So trope upon trope upon trope. Right, right. I right. want to know. I it constantly goes back to this. I want to know who the dynamics of the writer room and what it was composed of. Like yeah. that is the kind of thing I want to know. Is it just a room of a bunch of like white dudes hanging out, writing it was it at all a diverse group of people writing it, taking some of this thing into account. I know that in the day it's going to be whatever I believe Eric Kripke, who was, I think the lead writer, mm. I say that with a 50% certainty <laughs> uh, wanted and had to get through all that. But, it reeks of lacking a diverse room to be able to write it, to properly represent it. It's like someone saw things in media and they're like, Hey, that's a media trend. Let's just put it in here. We don't need anyone else, anyone else's help or insight to do it. We can do it without them. Right. But compared to other shows where we've dinged them on this, I think the boy is almost more frustrating because it's halfway there, right? Like it could have gone that extra step to have been genuinely compelling and good. 
and do something with these things and they just don't quite reach it. So it's almost even more frustrating because other shows it's like, okay, well, obviously not a diverse writing room. Let's just kind of groan at this and move the fuck on. And this one, it's like you were inching towards it. You, you, you could have done something and you didn't. Um, and it's, 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 it's on some level, the, the kind of catch 22 of the boys as a whole, right? Is that these are awful characters doing awful things to each other. And so on some level, it's like the characters are presenting these views, not necessarily the show, but sometimes the show at a meta level has to kind of step in and, and push things in a certain direction, right? And that's not what's happening here, uh, is that either A-Train needs to be a, a victim of his success and that needs to be engaged with. Or A-Train's an unrepentant asshole and his race should not be a factor. The fact that they're trying to do both, it does neither really well and it becomes extremely unfortunate. Yes. And it goes back to, it's more frustrating here because they're a satire that is trying to do a very certain thing and they seem to do it up to a point where they may offend, I want to, I'm going to say like the right wing and go look too liberal. So they have to like walk that line of, we're not going to offend anyone, but we're going to be political. And for them, it has worked. I can't lie. They're going to season four now, and it has worked very well for them. Well, I mean, but it, it's interesting you bring it up because I, <clears throat> in later seasons, um, they clearly divest themselves of that because um, minor spoilers for another season, but they bring in a character called Stormfront who is explicitly alt-right. And the show doubles down on, okay, this is why Nazis are assholes. Um, and so the show explicitly goes in that direction, but here they're not quite ready to make that step yet. Mm-hmm. Um, is there, there's it's a lot happened in the episode, but nothing, a big note happens. We get, the biggest thing is that we get the introduction of Kimiko and the potential implication of what that means. And then it's trying to track her down for most of the episode. I love Kimiko. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's so funny to say that because this episode is just clearly not presenting her in a good light. Um, but I, I, I really do love her because she is in a lot of ways the heart of the boys, even though they don't realize it yet. Uh, because she, first of all, uh, on a purely personal level, um, I am always a big fan of characters that use uh, sign language as their main way of communicating. Um, I feel like it's a representation that is rapidly getting uh, appreciation in media, but for a long time was never shown. So I'm always happy that in the, even though this case is because she's mute, not because she has hearing loss. Uh, uh, but the other one is that um, she just is very uncomplicated. Uh, she, she she likes certain things. She wants to do certain things. She doesn't want to do other things. It just happens that some of those things are she's willing to murder to get to them. <laughs> and she almost doesn't even quite understand why that's a problem, which for this show is fascinating because like this relentless, ruthless murderer is kind of the sweet, interesting character of the, of the show. I think she's presented that way, but as the series goes on, we get more of her backstory, the tragic right. backstory that she had to get through to get here. And right. that is surprising. The show could tell a story like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to spoil it in case we ever come back, decide to do season two of the boys. As we've discussed, we may come back someday. Right. Um, the only other thing is, uh, uh, yeah, this is the part where we start to see, uh, flashbacks of Butcher and realize that ultimately, yes, Butcher is also going to be fridged 
or which otherwise could be fridged, which the show to its credit is trying to make it clear this is maybe why he's putting up with Huey's bullshit because he sees himself in Huey um, as opposed to the comic, which kind of just went, lol, this happens to women all the time. Um, the show's at least trying to make it a thematic connection here by doing it this way. Um, but also it, the next episode makes it worse and that's frustrating. The relationship between Annie and Huey is painfully cute is the best way to put it. Yeah. It's so welcome. He's manipulating her, yep. which she doesn't know yet, but still falling for her at the same time. It mm-hmm. is, as you said, the epitome of a rom-com, but it has that nice touch where they're bowling and the real Huey sort of comes out and says, it says that you don't need to lessen yourself to make me feel better. Yep. Which is incredibly nice and sweet. And then something they poop on later. <laughs> well, that, and that's what's so, I think, great about Huey as a character. And Annie, honestly, th- these two characters are, are really great. Um, and the bowling scene, I, I'm glad we can make that real quick because that is a really good example of it because they both want to see the best in each other. And, Neither of them can actually have that. And the show is, is determined to make sure they never get that, which is, it's very noir. It's very um, drama and I love it. Um, but there's a genuinely good moment here where he calls her out and it's like, you can't be this, this bad of a bowler and breaks down his logic. Why? And it's all good reasoning. And so she turns out to be a fantastic bowler and then has, she makes a comment of, I learned that whenever I showed my strength, I would be hated. And that's not in a literal sense, but in terms of uh, personal strength is very much something that I know a lot of women go through is if I stand up for myself, I don't get rewarded. Society tells me, oh, it's good to be a strong woman, but that's not what society actually does when I actually am a strong woman. I'm going to expand it out. It's just not women. It's marginalized people in general. Okay. That's fair. I don't want to speak to that, that, but I know I've seen my wife. Having had many experiences like that myself, and I'm still having to deal with some of them. Fair enough. Um, and it's cool to see Huey direct that. It's like in a show that is so testosterone laden in a lot of ways, it's cool to have one character who just directly confronts toxic masculinity on some level. And he, that's his moment with Annie here foreshadows his ultimate conflicts with Butcher because he also pushes against Butcher's toxic masculinity. And so it's a great thread of Huey is a complicated character, but he's relatively consistent. He has certain values and he generally acts on those values. It's just he's put into extremely stressful circumstances and forces him to sometimes reassess them. And so it's like, yes, it's with one thing to have values, another thing to have values against someone who could destroy you with a thought or a heat beam or a, a millisecond. Yep. And that goes back more to the crux of what it is to be a hero is whether or not when the shit comes down, you stand up for those morals and values that you've expounded that you think are doing good. Right. Mm-hmm. I do want to touch on, I guess the, the biggest part of this that is all incredibly important long-term the second plane that Homelander effectively <laughs> brings down. Yes, that is actually a plot point. Um, I did I mean, yes, it's a horrible situation and it talks to how ruthless uh, Homelander is and it gives Maeve the character, yada, yada, yada. But I do love the comment of, we'll just lift the plane up. And he's like, 
I, there's air. What am I supposed to stand on? And I'm like, yes, this is a bit of superhero logic that's always bugged me. <laughs> I'm like, there's no, you need, you need something to push against to actually lift something. You can't just kind of shove something with nothing. Um, and so, and the way that Homelander just delivers that line of like, obviously I've thought of this. And it kind of annoys me that it keeps coming up. <laughs> but the fact that he's doing this kind of casual eye-rolling thing in the middle of watching people die is also peak Homelander, right? Is He's clearly disconnected from humanity at this point. And giving the thumbs up to people. I yes. think that you're giving Homelander too much credit. Really? Literally, yes. Um, from my read of him saying that what am I supposed to stand on there is a, a, I don't care. This is probably the first thing that pops into my mind. And it makes sense. But what am I supposed to stand on? I don't want to save these people. It's a bunch of effort. It is the the minimal amount of effort to even try to save one person that he actively fights even against. Even if they're going to tell someone something. I, I he doesn't think, I try think, I think, any other alternatives other than, Maeve, let's get the fuck out of here. I, I, th- I, think, those, I think those are both true. Um, but that's a fair point. I mean, because he's also clearly just like, listen, I'm having this conversation because I like you, but also I really just want to go. <laughs> and that is all the energy he gives off. That's fair. That's fair. And this is a an interesting point, though. It's like when I mentioned she was a Wonder Woman analog that can't fly because this is a specific moment that you definitely learn that she has no flying capability because she can't mm-hmm. fly herself. She requires Homelander to fly her to different locations to do these things. And that is painful and tragic in the scene where she even just tries to save one one little kid and can't do it because she can't fly. If she leaves off the plane, they're both dead. Right. right. And again, we're, uh, we're, we're reaching a point where the show is trying to say, Homelander's the bad guy. The rest of the seven could be redeemed. But it's, it's, it's not tracking, right? It, it, too much was done at the early ends. So Maeve is, I think, is a character that can be redeemed because she was never positioned strongly as the other characters. But the characters did horrible shit at the start of this show, and it's really hard to walk back from those. And we will end. I, I do want to give a shout out to Frenchie, though, using the crowd against A-Train yes. because they have that media thing. Beautiful. Like that is the the peak gamer moment when you have an enemy that you can't possibly fight against and win. You use what you know is a known flaw, which for them is a media in like everyone when to get an autograph from them. Beautifully done. Yeah. Weapon, weaponized celebrity was fantastic. But I want to end with the 45 speech that Homelander gives at the side of a wreckage to still win basically the day. Because originally they yep. were going to try to hijack the plane for to get militarization. And instead, all those people died and they still sort of get what they want moving forward as a positive from their deaths. Mm-hmm. It is people using people and mm, it is effectively using people that are not thinking about the larger situation and ready to f- cling on to anyone that puts out a, a gung ho message and not consider the implications of what's behind it. Yeah. And it's, it's so perfectly encapsulates that style of politics of, let me look at a horrible tragedy, claim to be sympathetic, and immediately pivot to my pet talking point and imply that these things are connected. Scary and yeah. real world. Any last comments on that one? Nope. I think we, got, we covered that one pretty well. 
Season one, episode seven, the self-preservation society. Huey and Annie have sex at a hotel. Unaware, Butcher has followed them. A depressed deep finds his transfer dull and is sexually assaulted by a fangirl who fingers his gills. Holding a meeting discussing Huey killing Translucent, uh, extorting Ezekiel, and A-Train killing Robin, Homelander accuses Starlight of co-conspiracy, but Maeve defends her. When A-Train calls Huey claiming he is holding his dad hostage, the boys deduce Mesmer, uh, Haley Joel Osment, betrayed them, for which Butcher later murders him. Huey obtains Compound V to distract A-Train and allows Kimiko to... Be, to brutally beat him, breaking his yep. leg. Homelander asks Vaught scientist Dr. Vogelbaum about Becca, who is Butcher's wife, who he informs informs him she was pregnant with his child, but claims both died during childbirth, and Vaught covered it up. Questioning the revelation, uh, Vogelbaum regrets raising him in a lab, calling Homelander his greatest failure. Butcher asks Rainer, to protect Huey and M.M.'s families in exchange for evidence. As Rainier charges Stillwell and Vaught, she learns of a superhero terrorist. Annie confronts Huey, who explains Vaught uses compound V on children before Butcher arrives to free him and shoots her in the chest. <sighs> this is a peak example of... Garthinessness, <laughs> right? Um, there are other episodes that that people often point to. Hey, this is peak Garthinness, but other ones we've watched. This is a point where the show just doesn't bother with subtlety anymore. And again, it's 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 working with the material it has. But I had forgotten about the super super terrorist, and I, I, I was not. just like. I was just like, oh, right. Of course, the Middle Eastern guy is actually a terrorist. Of course. And it's it, it, it's it's just so, so heinous, right? It's so like, let's take this this concept that people, that white people find scary and add superheroes to it. Well, and it's, not it's think about nuance or structure that- or resonance or logic of any of it. It's it's also the people that hijacked a plane in episode four that we sort of didn't delve into is more of the terrorism also, that he's also brown, yeah. leaning in and it goes back to being frustrating. Right. Um, and we also have a, a, a moment of sexual assault played for comedy, which is always fun. That's why they're trying. That's when they were trying to make us sympathetic to the deep, who has already committed sexual assault on someone else, right. and then goes wow. back into the thing again about the level of super strength that people have is inconsistent. Yeah, because that right. seems to have been something that the deep should have been strong enough to stop, but then it's. I chose this episode because it is so frustrating and so pivotal to everything else that happens. Yeah. And it shows a mix of something that could have been great and something that's done incredibly bad on multiple fronts that have been sprinkled throughout the show. Right. 
Um, like, I, I mean, I will say, having lived in Ohio part of my life, uh, Sandusky is kind of a blip. So <laughs> that most of that actually tracked. It's like nothing really happened to Sandusky. So it's like, that's fair. Um, but um, you're right. This is, this is, and as you say that, it's a, it is actually a good example because there's some fantastic stuff here that's almost right next to really awful stuff. Uh, like the scene of Homelander accusing people and him laying out his logic is actually really great because yeah. we know he's wrong and paranoid. But when he spells it out, you could see how those connections were made. It's like for a half second, I'm like, oh yeah, maybe Starlight did do this. And it's like, we know it's, we know it's just all circumstantial. Um, and it shows you how scary these kinds of charismatic ideologues really are is because at the worst of times they can sound reasonable. Uh, and so Homelander is a fantastic example of how terrifying these people can be because you're continually tricked into going maybe for like a half second, they're going, no, wait, no, you know? Um, so like that kind of scene is fantastic. And then it's right next to a train basically going through all of the drug addict stereotypes in one scene. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, <sighs> and it's, we, we've, we've said it's, it's frustrating and we, we've sighed heavily multiple times, but there is so much here that could have been amazing and like just top shelf, top shelf. Mm. But all the negatives drag it down. It's still, I'm not going to lie. It is still a good show, even with the yeah, problems yeah. that it has. Yeah. And how it's, it's not addressing. It is, it is looking at things and then stopping. And right. that is frustrating because it shines a light on something and it doesn't necessarily shine a light in a good way. It shines a light in a bad way. And then that's what it leaves you with. And people that are just ingesting media may not be willing to take the next step or two to really understand and comprehend what that means. Instead for, for a train, someone might watch it and think black athletes use like compound V to get juiced up. That's Mm -hmm. their full thought and it stops dead. Yep. But it doesn't go on past that. And that's it's hard for me as a viewer that overthinks things. Right. Uh, or similarly, um, uh, the whole Becca subplot um, where it's like Homelander has sex with Butcher's wife. It is left up to the viewer to decide whether it is consenting or not. Um, and then has a child and dies in childbirth. Uh Points for the thing is that goes back to an earlier point when her stomach glows with it, and, th- and that same way that a uh, homeowner's heat vision glows, it, it sells the danger of that uh, scene a slightly additional level as opposed to the other kind of screaming and, and, and the narrative telling you those are Pompeii trial birth, but it's an additional layer that adds to that scene to really help sell how scary that is, which I liked. Um, but there's a line where uh, so they're watching footage and and uh, and she goes into Homelander's office and then she comes out, she's mussed up and she's putting a shoe on. Uh, and there's a line there that says, there's three hours we can't account for. And it really, especially juxtaposed with the scene at the very start of this where the deep 
basically pressured a woman into having uh, sexual encounters with him. Uh, that that moment should have been something to kind of push this one way or the other, right? Like, did Homelander use his position to force her to have sex with him or not? Uh, and the fact that the show was unwilling to engage with that, it's like either take that line out because the three hours implies a certain amount of consent or really awful sexual abuse. And it's like that line's, if you're not going to engage with that, pull the line out. Just she goes in, she comes out, and then she's pregnant. Okay, we, we can connect those dots here. Um, so the show's constantly doing this, right? It's like it has some clear themes that it does want to play up and then throws a bunch of stuff in just to be awful. Which, again, is one type of Garth Ennis who just throws stuff in to be awful and doesn't want to engage with any of it. At least the show is like, let's take a couple of these things and actually do something with it, but then leaves the other stuff on the table. It's like just – I felt like it needed to focus itself a bit more, and, and that would have made the show stronger. Um, but so, but instead we have episodes like this where it's like when it's focused on the things the show wants to talk about, it's really fantastic. When it's doing other stuff just to be kind of generically awful, it's just uh, just upsetting. And it's not doing anything for me as a viewer. And I think it's also doing something even even more childish than that on like a lower level. Now that you've put those put that out there that had that sort of clicked something in my brain is that it made a specific point of saying that the deep who they turn into a joke and they try to have you like pity does a, an atrocious sexual violation of someone and it's he said it'd be like three minutes mm. to have the person who is equivalent of like their virile white man being like three hours or whatever their their yeah. thing was yeah which then mm -hmm. goes back to another even more childish level layer under all of that about stamina and so forth and so on right right and again the way his positions it's it's ambivalent and that's frustrating because it's it's the show on some level saying, Well, Becca found a real man as a possible interpretation. Purely as a way to emasculate and infuriate Butcher. When none of the characters in that scene have any incentive to give him that impression. Now, if Homelander had been saying that, that would be interesting, because he would be bragging. And that says something about his character. But that's not this is a person who's allegedly sympathetic to Butcher trying to give him information. Um, and so it's just, so at this point, it's just a show bragging about Homelander, which feels mm -hmm. weird. So great things coupled with horrible things all at once. Yeah. Um, I guess to move some to one of the plot beats is that for the implementation of their supers into the military, they create superpower terrorist and you know the only people that create superpower terrorists has to be Vought because Vought controls compound v right. which they then which equivalently lets them get what they want and also potentially saves Stillwell and Vought from having to face charges against from the government right and for the show we don't know who did that from like the episodes that we watched right. but I, i'm not going to spoil it in case someone really wants to go and watch it and find out for themselves and um, that is, of, ugh. it is like, now go ahead. I was just say like, 
the most charitable read, and this is extremely minor spoilers, um, but uh, the most charitable read is that this is an indictment of the U.S. government's policy of going into the Middle East and giving weapons to certain factions that are sympathetic to their view just to manufacture conflict for their overall agenda. And if the show actually addressed that, I would be behind this. The show kind of doesn't. It's just a, a throwaway subplot for the larger plot. And so it just kind of comes across as aren't brown people scary? I I think I've had enough of the show now. <laughs> uh, it's, so what you're saying is we're not going to go back and watch seasons two and three and four. <laughs> you never know. It's, it's, it's like I said, when it comes out, I'll watch it because it is very problematic, but it is a good show and it's doing something. It's just not doing it to the extent that I, as a viewer, writer, um, politi politically active person, because I go out and I protest things, want it to do. So it is right. much like uh, Oliver Queen would tell someone, it is, it is fail the city, is what it's doing. Right. Uh, now, since this is kind of the, the, the end of our deconstruction examination um, on some level, uh, how do you feel comparing I – mean, I mean, we've all been pretty down on Jupiter's legacy, so I'm not even going to bring that into the conversation. I think we all agree that failed on pretty much every level. Um, how would you compare the boys to, like, say, Peacemaker? Both are presenting awful, objectionable people. One is funny. One is not. Well – they're both funny in different ways. Um, the, I like the humor of Peacemaker more than I like the humor of The Boys. Let's put it that way. Um, but they're both ultra-violent. They're both uh, very profanity-laden. Uh, they both present a lot of isms. We both like Peacemaker. We both are uncomfortable, but generally find this to be a good show for The Boys. How do you feel Peacemaker does this better than The Boys? I don't feel it's a fair comparison. Because oh, okay. for... Peacemaker, we primarily have uh, Peacemaker's dad as the worst character, and we have Peacemaker himself, who is a bad character but is conflicted about being a bad character and keeps trying to do good things in bad ways, but it's just an overall almost incompetent asshole mm -hmm. compared to the boys, where we have a group of super powered bad people most of which are just despicable and bad that don't want to do good and aren't trying to do better. Coupled right. with the boys who don't have superpowers and half of them are just bad people that are doing bad things because they like to do bad things and driven right. by grief. Right. And it's harder to compare those because they are on different planes and trajectories. For instance, if Peacemaker decides Peacemaker wants to do bad shit all the time and run around there is a, a minimum amount of impact Peacemaker can have mm. compared to uh, Homelander who can have, by the way, I'm making hand gestures, folks. Um, yes. <laughs> massive amounts of impact on everything and everyone. Right. And they're just so intrinsically different. I, I personally cannot compare them. Well, honestly, that was kind of what I was thinking. I didn't, when I invited the comparison, that was actually kind of what was on my mind too, was that there's a power scale difference. Peacemaker is a bunch of awful people 
in a generally neutral superhero universe. The Boys is a generally awful superhero universe. Uh, and the other piece for me is that um, Peacemaker does have, a, well, a couple, but one specifically extremely awful person, uh, which is Augie. Uh, and the show continually reinforces constantly we don't want to like this person. We're going to give you a half second of maybe sympathizing with them, and then we're going to smack you over the head and say, no, seriously, you're not supposed to like this person. Uh, the boys dwells in moral ambiguity and never gives you any relief from it. And so therefore, everything is subject to moral exploration, and it therefore fails. Whereas Peacemaker is really not that morally complicated. It's just that the characters within it don't recognize where their place is in that moral discussion and comes to realize their place in that moral discussion. The boys doesn't really, does have a moral center, but none of the characters define the box, the edges of the box, if you will. Uh, again, later seasons that, that, that changes. I feel like later seasons do this better for the boys. Um, and, so the characters start to get pushed to the margins and therefore start to define the moral argument more and therefore the relationship with everyone in that moral argument becomes clearer and therefore it becomes stronger. Right now, it's all kind of just a big muddy mess of edge. Uh, it's like, look at how edgy this is. Um, and so that's why this season going back to it was a little frustrating because it's like, I know it gets better on some levels, but also I'm with you. It's not a show that invites rewatch, whereas I would I love watching Peacemaker again because I also know where that's going. And so I'm comfortable. It's like, yeah, they're uncomfortable and awkward now, but again, combination of, of I know it's going to get better and also the show constantly reframes. No, we know where we stand in this moral argument and we're never going to let you escape our stance on that. Mm -hmm. There's no, it's a, I'm just asking questions. And that's really what I think the boys is frustrating for me because <laughs> it, it is the TV equivalent. I'm just asking questions. No, answer some questions. <laughs> I hate that person. It's mm -hmm. a, that person that comes up, well, it's not my viewpoint, but what about... The devil does not need any more fucking advocates. Jesus. <laughs> um, all right. Any final comment on The Boys season one? It was okay. It's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, uh, um, I'm glad this show exists. I think it's the best way to phrase my, phrase my final thoughts on it. Um, I, I'm glad this show exists. I'm glad this show exists because it helps to uh, put forward some conversations in a better way than other shows have tried to do. Um, and I'm not going to lie, easily 50% of the show is Carl Urban. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but I do love Carl Urban, so I kind of watch it just for him. Uh, that's 80% of the reason why I watch Dread, you know? Um, <laughs> Easily a third of the reason why I watch the Star Trek movies. I mean, I, I, I love Carl Urban. So it's like, it, in that respect, I'm not going to lie. A lot of it is just star power. Um, and You're not going to talk about his Lord of the Rings work? I refuse to acknowledge that. Um, <laughs> I love Huey. I um, mean, you know, so there's just parts that I really do love. Uh, this is not like Batwoman where I, we watched the show and I was just like, Ugh, why did I do that? Um, I, I, I will look forward to the new season coming out relatively soon. So, I mean, this is a show I like, uh, but this is firmly in our podcast wheelhouse of willing to challenge things that we generally like in order for it to be better. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that there's another podcast I listen to now playing, which I think I've 
promoted them before. They're a great movie podcast. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they have is they have a, a homework category. Okay. For some shows in, they like them, even if they don't, but some of them fall in the homework category. I think the boys ardently falls into the homework category. It is a show that I think people should watch. You may want to watch an edited version of it if you can, but yeah. uh, it has a message and that message should be seen and processed. It's not going to help you process it. It's just going to tell you a message and then leave it up to you. But that of itself is a step. And yeah. a lot of things about activism in general are small steps that lead to larger change. Yeah. Absolutely. And on the whole, I will say the boys, eh, not bad. Yeah. Dig it. What can people expect us to do next time? Nothing. We're done. The show's over. All right. Podcast uh, over. Right. Uh, no, um, we are going back to where we started, which is that we're going to watch some Marvel shows on one streaming network exclusively. So it's kind of the big Ouroboros. Uh, but instead of the Netflix shows, we're going to watch the Disney Plus MCU connected shows. And I think it'll be interesting, even though we've talked about how long this is, I think it'll be interesting to kind of compare the shows that tried to be part of the MCU and didn't connect for obvious reasons to shows that were explicitly designed to connect larger NCU and how to compare and contrast those overall efforts. Uh, but we're going to start at the beginning with WandaVision. Um, we're going to do uh, episode one, filmed in front of a live studio audience, episode five on a very special episode, and episode seven, Breaking the Fourth Wall. If people are looking to support you or find you online, where could they do those things? Uh, you can find me online at my website, pugsteady.com. That's P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. You can find me as that also on Twitter and dice.camp. Or you can find me on the Darker Hue Discord, where I think at this point in time, I've been majorly going on about uh, Douglas Adams and his interview about game design in 1985. So. It's interesting, Reed. Uh, if if you're looking for me, you can literally just run out to the street. And if you believe hard enough and shout the word Spivey into the sky, a <laughs> lightning bolt may strike next to you and I'll be there. I love it. There we go. Um, so that, th- and that means that uh, next week we will talk about uh, summoning other kinds of creatures uh, that, in WandaVision. Yeah. <laughs>